0: This episode of Engineering Matters was made in partnership with the Satellite Applications Catapult. It's December 2015 and the UK is hit by storm after storm after storm. Desmond, Eva and Frank flood the country with record-breaking rainfall and rivers all over the UK are dangerously swollen. Yorkshire in the north of England is one of the worst hit areas. Thousands of properties are flooded as intense rainfall overwhelms defences. But in the village of Tabcaster, something happens that no one was expecting. This is the sound of the Tadcaster Bridge collapsing into the river wharf. It took less than 30 seconds for the upstream section of the 200-year-old masonry arch structure to plummet into the raging waters beneath. But new research shows that data from satellites could have given owner, North Yorkshire County Council, prior warning that the bridge was at risk of collapse. This catastrophic failure could have been prevented. And so could many, many more. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And in this episode, we're investigating how satellite data can help us manage structures better down here on Earth. Not just for the prevention of catastrophic failures, but also to enable more appropriate long-term management. It started with research between the UK's Satellite Applications Catapult and the University of Cambridge back in 2017, who took measurements of several bridge structures in the UK, and they set about answering a simple question.
1: Are satellites showing the right amount of displacements?
0: This is Christian Rossi.
1: I am the Principal Earth Observation Specialist at the Satellite Applications Catapult. I am a telecommunication engineer with a PhD in remote sensing technology.
0: Christian and researchers at Cambridge began answering the question.
1: For that, we uh, created a framework to combine those terrestrial measurements with satellite measurements for uh, a validation purpose.
0: So the team compared data captured by satellites, showing how much bridges were moving, with actual movement on the ground.
1: We have found a very good matching Uh, between the two two measurements.
0: This gave the team the confidence to ask an even more difficult question. Could they have predicted that the Tadcaster bridge was about to fail?
1: This bridge actually collapsed in 2015 due to uh, scouring. We collected 48 scenes in 2014-2015, so over over, uh, one and a half year, more or less.
0: This is data from before the bridge collapsed. And we were able to spot
1: uh, the location of, of the collapse with uh, uh, these with this, with this measurements. So uh, we have found anomalies in the side of the bridge that collapsed that confirm, uh, also in a collapse case, uh, the validity of those measurements.
0: Specifically, they determined that the rate of displacement of the bridge was accelerating and in mid-November, it burst through the tolerable expected range of movement of around four millimetres to six millimetres. And it kept going. Two weeks later, by the end of November, it was nine millimetres. And just one month later, the structure collapsed.
1: So uh, this example over, over Tadcaster showed how satellite data can be actually used to uh, prevent collapse and uh, to build early warning system for that.
0: And Tadcaster is not the only bridge failure that might have been predicted with satellite data. On the 18th of August 2018, the Morandi Bridge in northern Italy collapsed during the middle of a busy Saturday, killing 43 people. Less than a year later, in June 2019, a study between NASA, the Italian Space Agency, the Italian Environment Ministry and the University of Bath looked at satellite data for 15 years prior to its failure. It showed that movement of the bridge had been accelerating since 2015. So with these new insights, should we be harnessing satellite data more regularly to protect bridges and the public that use them? Researchers in Canada think so.
2: Well, I am uh, Daniel Cusson, and I'm a senior research officer with the National Research Council, and more particularly with the uh, Construction Research Centre of NRC.
0: Daniel is a quietly spoken structural engineer and bridge expert who's been at the NRC for 25 years. The NRC's role is to support the growth of Canadian industry through the development of new technologies and research. His group is focused on creating better tools for the condition and performance assessment of critical infrastructure, such as bridges.
2: And with uh, Catapult, we are developing a decision support tool to help bridge engineers make better decisions on the condition and performance of their bridge based on data. This is key information that they need. And sometimes it's missing.
0: Missing data. Not an ideal situation when there's 80,000 bridges across the country.
2: Well, 80,000 public bridges across the country.
0: Most are owned and managed by municipalities and provinces and a few by the federal government.
2: But there's no central database listing these bridges or their condition. so. The information is kept at the local level.
0: With a design life of around 70 years, the bridges remain in service for a really long time. And like in any country, the condition of these bridges varies widely. Appropriate maintenance is therefore critical if the country is to avoid the disasters that others have experienced.
2: According to Canada's infrastructure report card.
0: This is an annual assessment of Canada's infrastructure, which last year found that a significant proportion of its assets were ageing and in urgent need of investment.
2: There are about 60% of bridges that are in very good condition, and good or very good. But there are also 25% of them uh, that are in fair condition and 15% in poor or very poor condition.
0: That's 12,000 public bridges across Canada in poor condition. And Daniel says that one of the reasons for this, along with limited maintenance budgets, is the issue he raised earlier missing data.
2: Well, bridges must be inspected regularly every two years, uh, but the most important, only the most important ones get fitted with sensors uh, to have more data on their condition and performance. Uh, basically, uh, inspection and monitoring are important to ensure their safety and to prevent failures. Uh, one factor also is the limited number of tools uh, that to help the engineers prioritise bridges for inspection and maintenance.
0: And it's this data gap that NRC is trying to fill, with the help of Christian and the team at the UK Satellite Applications Catapult. They've created a new decision support tool for bridges known as Brigital, which in the long term could form the basis of a national assessment database.
1: Brigital stands for bridge and digital.
0: Christian and Daniel have worked together on the new project, which began with a demonstrator.
1: So we want to build basically a tool that demonstrates to the um, bridge engineers and to the civil engineering um, industry and community how can we properly display and how can we properly provide this sort of, in, of information in an easy-to-access way.
0: The satellite data that Christian and Daniel accessed was then used to calculate the displacement of bridges over time. And it was gathered using a technology known as InSAR, interferometric satellite aperture radar. This is the satellite applications catapults chief technology officer Paul Febre explaining how it works.
3: First of all, we need to understand how a radar works a little bit. Basically, when you burst this energy and you collect the energy back, and if you imagine a radar in a in an airport or something, it's a spinning dish, if you like, and it's bursting energy getting the energy back. Now, uh, the, the way that the radar understands the signal coming back is it, it has a time of arrival of, of the signal. So you send a burst out and you wait for it to come back and you look for characteristics of the signal, how long it's taken to, to traverse and whether there's any Doppler compensation, in other words, whether there's a moving object which has disturbed the frequency. But the resolution is really limited by the Essentially, the size of the radar and the frequencies that we use. the The great thing about a satellite is it's moving. So, if you take a a, a multiple sort of pulses as the satellites are moving, you're getting a different reflection from the objects that which you're radiating. And what you can do using some uh, mathematical functions is create a what we call a synthetic aperture, which is associated with the the length of the orbit that you're using to illuminate that particular object or scene on the ground. So by doing it, by sending a radar, a sequence of radar pulses as the satellite moves through its orbit you can build up a really detailed picture of the the scenes that you're trying to observe on the ground and that's what we call synthetic aperture radar because it's not the size of the satellite that matters so much but the size of the sweep of the orbit that you're using.
0: So if a bridge is moving relative to the environment, there'll be a shift in the phase of the signal that comes back from the bridge.
3: And it's the difference in the phase of the signal, which is when the signal arrives, it's moved slightly more in one signal than the other, relative to each other. We can detect those phase differences, and actually you can detect the phase differences down to millimetres, with these, because with the signal frequencies that we use for radar signals. So what you can do is if you've got a really st- solid structure, um, you can measure the relative phase for different parts of the structure, and it gives you a really significant indicator of, of relative movement, which is a stress on the bridge.
0: Millimetre accuracy from hundreds of kilometres above the Earth.
3: So they would typically be in the few hundred kilometres between 300 and 600 kilometres.
0: And in satellite terms, that's actually quite close. InSAR satellites sit in a low Earth orbit, given the acronym LEO.
3: It needs to be LEO. Uh, and the reason is, it comes back to pure physics. We have a, um, a relationship between the intensity of the signal and the distance from the source that is an inverse square law. So if you, if you move two metres away from an object, um, then the intensity is a quarter of the intensity if you're one meter away from the object. So if you as you go further and further away, the intensity falls off with the inverse square. The challenge with radar is that you've got a, an outbound signal which falls off with the intensity of the square, and then a, re, a reflected signal which falls off with the intensity of the square. So actually, the, the, the signal that comes back to the satellite diminishes with a power of to the power of four with respect to the distance.
0: So a shorter distance has an exponentially stronger signal. Back in Canada, Daniel and Christian used radar data from the Canadian Space Agency satellites to begin monitoring the movement of bridges in Montreal.
2: I selected a few bridges uh, that I thought were quite important to monitor and would be a good demonstration uh, for, for this kind of technology. The second step is basically to um, get additional information from the owner of the bridges that I've selected, for instance, uh, the jacques cartier Bridge in Montreal.
0: This 2.8-kilometre, five-lane, steel truss cantilever bridge was built 90 years ago and crosses the St. Lawrence River, linking Montreal Island with Quebec. Daniel approached owner, the jacques cartier and Champlain Bridge Authority, for information.
2: And they agreed very nicely to uh, provide uh, information on the bridge so that I can compare the, the satellite measurements with calculations based on the information that they gave me.
0: Using local information about the bridge, Daniel and Christian were able to create a numerical 3D model of the structure that they could use to calculate theoretical displacements. As we know, bridges move, all structures move. And there's a range of normal expected movement caused by loading from use of the bridge and natural movement such as thermal expansion or long-term settlement under its own weight. This bridge was no different. This
2: bridge is, uh, I would say, uh, an impressive structure. It's made up of a steel truss uh, supporting a concrete deck. And we've learned specifically that um, steel bridges, in particular, are ideal candidates for satellite-based monitoring because their structure, made of sharp elements, can send strong signals back to the satellite. And it's quite interesting this way.
0: (laughs) So Daniel calculated the theoretical displacement data about the bridge. He then needed to compare it to the satellite data. And this is where the bridgetal tool tool came in. Christian explains how this INSAR data that Paul talked about was converted.
1: So we have an instrument in space that transmits and receives. So in this way, it's able to to measure distancy in a very accurate level. Now, if we have two measurements at two different times, we can measure the difference in distance. So basically, we we can measure the displacement.
0: Measuring this repeatedly over time creates a stack of data describing the history of the position of the structure, in this case bridges, but it could be applied to any structure.
1: So this is in form of point cloud. So basically, they're points. So they are like uh, locations in the bridge. And, uh, and the, the technique to produce this point cloud, it's, uh, uh, it's quite an advanced one. So uh, the satellite uh, basically uh, gets acquisitions and uh, we can think to images. So we have like a set, of, a set of images. But what we want, it's an information out of those acquisitions.
0: And this is the really critical part. A selection of overhead satellite images will not tell a NASA owner much. The real value is in the data analysis that the Brigital tool carries out using point cloud data as an input.
1: What we use for uh, for Brigital is called persistence scatterer interferometry, which is one of the several techniques to generate those sorts of measurements It's basically studying the phase history of those of those locations, so studying the how the the distance between the satellite varies in
0: time. So having the numeric model and satellite data in the form of a point cloud, Daniel and Christian created the Bridgetall tool to compare the movement of the jacques Cartier bridge with what was predicted and then displayed it in the 3D model format that Daniel described before. The results were quite amazing.
2: When we look at the thermal sensitivity of the displacement, which is a measurement from the satellite that is given in millimetres per degree C. Uh, We find a very good correlation with the calculations, the thermal, basically the thermal displacement of the bridge expressed in terms of unit temperature change.
0: This was very good news in two ways. It showed that the satellite data was accurate and that the bridge was moving as expected, both in terms of predicted movement due to temperature change and general local movement.
2: The correlation was fantastic. Uh, We could explain the expansion and the contraction of the bridge, uh, of the different parts of the bridge based on the change in the ambient temperature that was measured at the bridge or near the bridge. Basically, the accuracy was quite uh, amazing. Uh, just a few tenths of millimetres difference uh, when we looked at it.
0: Knowing that bridges are safe, that they're not moving more than they're expected to, is also useful information for owners of those bridges, most of which are decades old. Having now done this for several bridges in Canada, Daniel and Christian are confident of the accuracy of the INSAR data, meaning they can move on to the next phase of Bridgetalk, which is the potential we talked about right at the beginning of this episode. Using the tool to create an early warning system to inform asset owners if their bridges are moving in a way that they should not. This is the exact kind of information that's been retrospectively gathered for the UK and Italy, and which could have saved lives.
1: Within this tool, we are now in the second phase where we we built the framework, uh, the early warning system basically, we built the framework to classify the points depending on uh, their their movements. So um, what we are doing specifically is to predict a tolerable, tolerable movement and to match this tolerable movement with the satellite measurement.
0: This range is then shown using a red or green data display, telling us our owners whether the bridges need attention.
2: And typically green is, means good, and red means uh, not so good. <laughs> and, uh, but also, uh, with the early warning system, uh, the points can be highlighted in all in green or all in red, depending on whether they fit within the thresholds that we have uh, calculated for the bridge. So, there are some limits over which we don't want the displacement to be. And if the displacement exceeds this lim- these limits, then, then the, the software will uh, alert the bridge owner. It could, the software could send a text message or an email message to the owner and say, okay, there's uh, an excessive displacement, it's exactly positioned at this location, and then the, the bridge owner can, can send an inspection team to, uh, to look at the bridge and, and verify what's the problem. And based on that, they will be able to take uh, action for, for the repair.
0: And finally, Daniel and Christian want to move on to create the kind of central database that doesn't exist anywhere in the world right now.
1: The next phase brings the tool to an operational tool, where we move from a demonstration to a all bridges, basically, to uh, a tool that is able to to give this information for all types of bridges and to to all the bridges in uh, um, in the world, in principle.
0: Daniel describes Bridgital as a tool that will give engineers missing data, but it will not replace the need for inspections and measurement of other crucial information that satellites can't gather. What it could do is enable asset owners to prioritise which bridges need most attention in a kind of ranking system. It could use algorithms to predict when activities need to be carried out in future and crucially it could spot dangerous movements of bridges which are not visible to the naked eye and allow asset owners to time any engineering interventions most appropriately. Andre Popper is a senior bridge engineer working for consultant Atkins in the UK, which designs, maintains and assesses bridges for a wide range of organisations all over the world. He explains that our network of thousands of historic bridges, some of the oldest in the world, is inspected according to the regime set out by the road authority, Highways England. This is an agency of the government's Department for Transport and the regime's described in its design manual for roads and bridges, which was recently updated to CS 450, Inspection of Highway Structures. He explains there's five types of bridge inspection. The most frequent are general inspections, carried out every two years, and these can be undertaken when bridges remain open. Engineers only need to inspect the parts that they can see more detailed investigations carried out less frequently under a principal investigation.
4: Next we've got the principal inspection. This is more complex, I would say, uh, where the inspectors are employing special means of access, like mobile elevated working platforms, um, or in other cases, uh, people who can access confined spaces.
0: Specially trained divers or cranes might be needed, for this inspection is extremely thorough and it also requires the bridge to be accessible by the hands of the engineer. Literally, section 3.10 of CS450 states, a principal inspection shall comprise a close examination within touching distance of all accessible parts of a structure.
4: The purpose of this principal inspection is to provide a more in-depth knowledge of the state of the bridge
0: and it's carried out every 72 months or six years, unless a longer period has been set out by the overseeing organisation. But six years is the standard. So what are engineers looking for?
4: Broad signs of, um, early signs of failure, things like cracks, things like subsistence, spoiling of concrete, corrosion of steel members, if we're talking a steel bridge or of a composite steel and concrete bridge. And... Bearings are another element of a bridge which are usually a problem.
0: Bearings are the components of the bridge that sit between the piers and the deck. They transfer load from the substructure through to the supports and allow for controlled movement.
4: And this is because, uh, as you know, bearings are located either on piers or on abutments and usually there are expansion joints on top of the piers or on top of the abutments. Which are failing, and in turn, this allows for uh, chlorides to ingress, especially from uh, overwinter gritting. And this has a detrimental effect on the concrete and can damage a lot of other elements.
0: The third type of inspection is a safety inspection, triggered by the police or the public. For example, if a car drives into a bridge. The
4: fourth type is a special inspection, which is uh, carried out to evaluate the condition of certain parts of a bridge, say bearings or piers, if we are talking a bridge which is spanning a river.
0: A localised inspection then of a particular component. And finally, there's an assessment inspection, which is designed to gather information for one of the other four studies. At the moment, none of these inspections use satellite data, but they could.
4: A tool like this uh, would come to the aid of the bridge inspection regime by identifying uh, bridges which are showing signs of distress leading to a potential collapse. And if it can provide enough early warning to the bridge owner, the bridge owner can close the bridge and call for a special inspection. And this way the catastrophic event may be uh, avoided.
0: And this is the plan for Bridgetal with its red and green notification system, that it could form the basis of an early warning system for bridges all over the world. Andre suggests that in the UK, it should be managed by a single organisation that could provide this data to bridge owners.
4: It would be a very good idea to have uh, some, let's call it an overarching authority, uh, whose main purpose and objective would be to analyse all this data across the whole country, and then when amber or red flags start to emerge, that authority can go to the, that specific um, bridge owner and share that data and say, look, you have a problem here, please investigate as a matter of emergency.
5: I think it would be absolutely fantastic having a common database where everyone speaks the same language, everyone's got access to the same information which is a huge benefit.
0: Anna Fitzgerald is the Highway Systems Manager for Oxfordshire County Council. Like the council in North Yorkshire, she has a wide range of bridges to look after, some of which are hundreds of years old, and she welcomes the idea of a centralised database that would give an early warning on bridge movement. At the moment, she says every asset owner has their own database. Some map deterioration and some don't. I think it would be really, really useful to have
5: that collective approach, but also some predictive modelling across um, you know, so you can tell where issues may occur in the future. You can have early warning signs, you can have major warning signs, etc., etc. But also having a national database, I think, would help to collaborate, work with other authorities.
0: Better coordination of maintenance activities with other authorities, such as Network Rail or Highways England or neighbouring local road authorities. Not a side effect that most people consider from satellite data, but Anna has lots of ideas. I think it also would help us to understand the impact of
5: any diversions, for example, that we put in place, how they would affect other authorities, their structures, etc.
0: Better data is a big challenge for Anna and other local authorities, who've been at the sharp end of local authority budget cuts. Austerity has hit councils hard over the past decade, reducing the numbers of in-house staff. Roads and bridges have to compete with health and social funding, education and services like waste collection. Meanwhile, bridges are getting older. According to data from the Driver RAC Foundation, there's over 3,000 bridges in the UK that are in such poor condition they're unable to carry heavy traffic. Repairing them would cost over a billion pounds and councils can't afford to spend the money to do it. Instead, they introduce weight limits and divert heavy traffic along other routes. Anna says that having centralised asset data would support these councils to target repairs and maintenance more effectively
5: we need to know in advance that, for example, bridge A, B, and C will need major works in two years, three years, four years. We can put those into programs of work and it will help us develop those programs of work, um, you know, centrally as to what needs immediate repair, what needs, you know, minor, major, etc etc And also then just to help us see the bigger picture of actually, you know, based on the investment that we're currently making, um, how our stock is managed. If there's any deterioration over time, if there's, you know, do we need to look at allocating extra resources or certain areas, etc. I think it would massively help predict how the bridge stock will be managed over the next few years.
0: Charlie Davies is an innovation and research engineer at contractor Costain, which describes itself as a smart infrastructure solutions provider. It maintains bridges, roads and other infrastructure for clients all over the UK. He says that embracing new technologies like Bridgetal isn't just useful, it's vital.
6: We see digitisation as key to our survival within within, uh, the UK economy and the world economy. It's a well-known fact that productivity uh, and efficiency within the construction sector is behind the curve for manufacturing and other leading services. So we need to transform our industry to enable that that change that will will help us to deliver major infrastructure projects on time and to budget as an industry as a whole, not just as Costain.
0: In this context, then, he says that remote monitoring using tools like Bridgetal and other types of remote data collection is the direction that the industry needs to head towards.
6: From a safety case, remote monitoring is a great way of reducing the people-plant interface uh, to reduce the amount of people on site uh, who are at harm in say a motorway environment or a rail environment where there's mobile vehicles um, moving around and, and that is a real danger. Um, so that's from a, a worker's point of view, but from a, a productivity point of view, if we, have, we can reduce the, the amount of people having to travel to site to um, monitor bridges, whether it's bridges, buildings, highways, rails, pipelines, it's, it's a great way to, to be able to do that remotely so that one person can monitor a whole network from the comfort of their own living room.
0: And it's this transferability of satellite data for monitoring not just bridges but other structures such as roads, railways and buildings that Charlie's excited about, as well as the efficiency of this displacement data being gathered using non-intrusive methods. Another advantage is that it means every movement's being monitored more frequently Some LEO satellites orbit the Earth every 90 minutes. But under the current system, as we've heard already, bridges are only inspected every two years at the most.
6: A lot can change in two years when you look at the the rise of extreme weather and the increase in usage of our assets and our infrastructure. So increasing the frequency of inspection uh, is hugely valuable to to having an optimally performing infrastructure.
0: One of the biggest challenges for purveyors of satellite technology is convincing asset owners, many of which are public sector entities, about the value of this missing information. After all, they've managed without it for hundreds of years. But since the satellite applications catapult began operating in 2013 as one of a network of catapult centres, a series of industries have begun to harness space technology to give them new information and to improve life on Earth.
7: We found new ways of, of trying to link up the space community with the non-space community.
0: This is the CEO of the Satellite Applications Catapult, Stuart Martin.
7: We started out looking at the oceans, because the oceans covers two-thirds of the Earth. Um, there's no other infrastructure out on the ocean, so satellites are really the only way of, of seeing what's going on there.
0: And this missing data made supply chain monitoring impossible
7: the high seas in many ways were the you know the last remaining you know vestige of what you know the wild west and uh, the ungoverned uh, territories of earth uh, and so we were we were able to work with a number of people who were interested in trying to make sure that that industry was uh, you know operating within legal frameworks and operating ethically
0: and that led to the creation of a new business, which empowers fishing authorities and customers such as supermarkets to understand whether the produce complies with international standards.
7: Now we have a spin-out business called Ocean Mind that's uh, selling services to um, supermarkets who want to be sure that they're buying you know, fish that's been caught using legal methods and in compliance with licences and in, in compliance with good practice and what their customers want. Uh, but also, you know, supporting enforcement agencies. So I, th- I think that was that was a really, um, you know, a powerful starting point to where we could say, okay, the, we can we can we, we've immediately made a difference with what we've been doing. And so now, since then, we've been looking for other areas where we can apply the same logic. We've been working in the transport sector. We've been working in the health sector. We've been working in the mining sector.
8: I think it's really interesting to see the way that we're evolving not just within the space sector but in in the world as we get used to more and more different kinds of data in our lives, how we use that data and how that can actually bring really valuable insight.
0: Lucy Edge has been an engineer in the space industry for two decades and she's the Chief Operating Officer for the Satellite Applications Catapult. She explains that this newly available data from navigation and communications tools to radar satellites is a result of technical evolution.
8: The, the space industry that I've been involved with has has changed dramatically and, and that's over about 20 years now. When, when I started working after I graduated, there, there were two things that were really, really different from today. I think the first one was that the incredibly interesting Earth observation technology from space in lots of different frequencies, wavelengths, was not really commercially available at all. So I did work on it and I worked on it in uh, in very, very specific applications. It was very expensive. It was uh, very costly and quite slow to launch a satellite into space. And it had a very specific role when it got there. So that was one thing that was very different. The other thing that was very different was that when I joined the space industry, a lot of the conversation was around why would you spend taxpayers' money on building a satellite? Aren't there better things that you can spend the money on that would be more beneficial to our population?
0: But then everything changed when the value of this missing data and connectivity was realised and it quickly became essential.
8: We all know, of course, that spacecraft technology and the infrastructure from space is absolutely critical to the way that we live our lives now, whether that's getting weather forecasts or uh, location data on our phones through our sat-navs or or, or whatever, but but also um, more complicated infrastructure for communications in places where we would never have dreamt of being able to speak to each other in the past.
0: At the same time, the technology's got smaller and smaller, dramatically bringing costs down. A journey of miniaturisation that today sees satellites the size of a loaf of bread orbiting the Earth. For example, in April 2019, the Catapult worked with a company called Orbital Microsystems to launch a new miniaturised weather monitoring satellite. Put into orbit from the International Space Station, it can gather localised weather data more frequently than the current large-scale institutional satellites that sit in geostationary orbit, which is around 36,000 kilometres above the Earth. This satellite, called IOD-1 GEMS, Global Environmental Monitoring Satellite, is the size of a shoebox and can give accurate weather data every 15 minutes. And this is part of the Catapult's larger in-orbit demonstration programme, partially funded by Innovate UK and the UK Space Agency.
8: So we haven't just been on a journey of technology development and miniaturisation and cost reduction. We've also been on that journey of sort of helping ourselves to be comfortable with this way of working. There's so much power in spacecraft technology because it's completely borderless. It goes everywhere around the world, depending on which orbit you're in. So there's so much to be gained from it. But we do have to have that confidence in it in order to be able to really use it properly.
0: And this confidence in satellite data is growing as more applications are created, tested and applied. Sam Lee is a senior innovation lead at Transport for Greater Manchester and he says that his department acts as a kind of pathfinder discovering how new technologies can help improve the city's multitude of transport systems.
9: There's a huge opportunity with satellite application data for us to better understand how assets and infrastructures uh, and the conditions they are currently in. Um, as you may know, a lot of our asset management requires people on the ground uh, uh, or, or IoT-type sensors, and they carry a significant cost where satellite applications and the Earth Ops data could provide that sol- solution at a much lower cost without us constantly sending out guys on the ground um, to examine them. So it gives us additional flexibility that we traditionally didn't have.
0: But it isn't just asset monitoring that Sam's exploring. He thinks satellite data could help cities improve their spatial planning.
9: And now expanding a bit more with satellite data, we we know that um, the rise of satellite imagery and Earth observation data People are starting to use this to help look at city planning and kind of the growth of a city as a whole. So we're aware that commercial companies are now starting to use satellite application imagery to determine the number of cranes in the city to really understand you know, the level of growth it's going at. Um, for, for us as transport authority, we want to better understand everything from people movement to air quality. Satellite data could potentially help us with that as a whole.
0: And this is where the Catapult hopes to support organisations like TFGM and any business interested in exploring the potential for satellite data. Its own mission is to open up new markets. This is Chief Strategy Officer, Dr Sam Adlin.
6: Our aim is very much to make sure that these markets are, are opened up, that there are businesses delivering into those markets, that there are customers aware of the potential and and, and hence open to acquiring the services that are that are created. So if anyone's at all interested then they should absolutely be coming to talk to us to understand what the power of satellites is and, and how they can really help them benefit as as they move towards thinking about
7: how they work in the future.
0: Sam isn't the only one looking to the future. Here's Stuart again.
7: We are now looking at what does the future for the UK in space hold. Uh, and i think the way that the uk and, and looking back at the you know what we did 10 years ago at 2010 the other big uh, uh, strategic move we made at that point was to decide that the uk wanted to get involved in launch uh, at that point it was a very unfashionable thing to say so it took a lot of people by surprise that that was that was a priority for the uk uh, these days launch is very fashionable and everyone's trying to do it so you know we have you know, one of the world's leading robotics advanced manufacturing capabilities. We have this new launch facility. We have one of the m- most commercially oriented space industries. Uh, and you know it, it's opening up completely new ways of exploiting the space environment. The possibilities of that are very exciting.
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, editing and sound design by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and our executive stargazer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to the UK's Satellite Applications Catapult, Canada's National Research Council, Atkins, Costain, Oxfordshire County Council and Transport for Greater Manchester. Engineering Matters is available on all podcast apps or on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Our episode partner is the Satellite Applications Catapult. The Satellite Applications Catapult is a technology and innovation company created to drive economic development through the exploitation of space. The Catapult is a not-for-profit organisation that works with businesses of all sizes to realise their potential from space.